A very good morning to you. My name is, uh, my name is Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together we attempt to lead this wonderful, wonderful expression of the body of Christ, the South West London Vineyard. Um, it's great to see you all here this morning. You're very welcome. If you're new or visiting, it's lovely to have you. It's lovely to have our visitors from Manchester in the Netherlands um, and any others of you who are visiting. Oh, I'm from Ballon. <laughs> it's great to see you. And, um, you're very welcome. If you want to connect with the guys over at the welcome desk, uh, we'd love to help connect you with this part of the body of Christ or any part of the body of Christ, really. So do go and uh, say hello to the team. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. And if you've been here over the past uh, few weeks, we've been looking sort of at the story, the story of the Bible. We're kind of attempting the sort of whole narrative arc of the scriptures and trying to break that down into six bite-sized chunks, which feels a little bit ambitious. Uh, we began by looking at creation, which is when the kingdom kind of gets off the ground. The kingdom begins. Last week we looked at the fall, uh, which is where the kingdom falls apart, where the kingdom rebels. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Israel, which is when the kingdom gets rebooted, gets sort of starting again. Uh, next week we'll look at Jesus where the king comes with his kingdom, and then we'll move on to the church where the kingdom is extended, and then we'll end with uh, new creation where the king returns to rule and to reign forever and ever. Amen. And having looked at creation, so the first week we looked at creation, we kind of saw that everything that God created was good. Genesis uh, 31 says, you know, God saw that he had made it, it was very, it was very good. And there's something about this goodness, this idea of this thing that we've been calling shalom, um, that, resonate, that resonates, this goodness, it resonates with us at a really uh, deep level. There's something that's kind of hardwired and it's like, this, yeah, this is, that's right. This is how things were supposed to be. There's something about goodness that resonates with us, that actually deep down, um, we have this sense deep in our Noah that we were, and that's uh, N-K-N-O-W-E-R, not N-O-A-H. But deep in our Noah, wherever that is, that, that we were actually always intended, we were designed, we're made to live in this uh, interdependent and deeply connected shalom, you know, where mankind is actually kind and all is well with the world. And, and the shalom that we've talked about comes really interestingly actually around relationship. It's rooted in relationship, it's rooted in right relationship with God, it's rooted in a, a sense of right relationship with ourselves, it's, it's deeply connected and rooted in right relationships with one another and obviously connected to a relationship and a right relationship with the world in which we find ourselves. And all of those relationships flourishing as God intended, which is what we saw from the creation narrative and also from uh, this whole idea of Shalom, and there's something I think that's deeply hardwired into all of us. That no matter how bleak the outlook, how challenging the circumstances of life that we might be facing, um, that has this deep longing for this shalom, for this well-being, for this um, rightness. But the reality, as we talked about, the reality of our lives and our circumstances and our situation is that that we know that that's not our experience all the time, and um, Sometimes it's when we actually get a glimpse of 
God's kingdom. It's when we get a glimpse of Shalom that it kind of almost highlights how out of whack and out of kilter everything else is. And we know that we live in a world that is broken. And last week we were looking at how um, sin, and we described sin as the, the culpable disturbance of that um, shalom. We talked about sin as being the human propensity to um, mess, do you remember? Uh, I mess things up. We talked about sin as being, you know, that decision, those decisions that we all make in the moment whereby we are choosing, moment by moment sometimes, not to trust in God's vision for human um, flourishing. We talked about how sin has fragmented everything and how the consequences of sin um, is just a wreaking havoc on our lives uh, and on the lives of the people around us that we love and on the very fabric of the world in which we find ourselves. And, and as things become increasingly fragmented, we find ourselves um, in broken relationships. We find ourselves in a broken relationship with God. We find ourselves in broken relationships with ourselves. We find ourselves in broken relationships with the people around us, often with the people around us who we love the most. And we find ourselves in broken relationship with the world in which we find ourselves. And so, as we saw from last week, um, the narrative from the fall, which is in Genesis 3, all the way through to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is really this heartbreaking, thoroughly, utterly depressing, spiraling, downward story of the devastation and the ravages of sin on all of our uh, relationships. So by the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, apart from being completely and utterly depressed, we're sort of um, bewildered by the car crash of the story so far, and we find ourselves kind of asking ourselves the question, like, what is God going to do? What, what is God going to do about this? How is this all going to resolve? How is God's kingdom? How is God's rule and reign going to be established on the earth again? How are our relationships our connectedness, which now sort of all feel broken, you know, with God, with one another, with ourselves, and with the world in which we live. How is it all going to get redeemed and restored and, and renewed? And the answer, I think, is a little bit surprising, uh, to me at least, because as you read what comes next in Genesis chapter 12, it looks like, it looks like the answer might be beginning at least um, in the story of um, this little old couple. And... Um, Really, it's the story of, of God just not being content to give up on humanity. And it looks like God is going to sort of try again. It looks like he's going to start again, almost with a new Adam and a new Eve. And it looks like he is calling on humanity to be part of the answer. And so it looks like part of the answer, at least all of this brokenness and dysfunction, is going to come from God choosing one family from this car crash of a narrative from Genesis chapter 3 through to 11. So just imagine yourself there. The Tower of Babel has just happened, and everyone has been scattered. Everyone's speaking different languages. Um, pretty much everyone is pagan. At least they're certainly not worshiping Yahweh. Uh, and God is pursuing running after in his goodness he is running after humanity and he's trying to find someone um, whereby he someone he can work with to get the story uh, that is getting utterly derailed back on track and he's looking for someone who in effect will be a conduit through which he can redeem and renew and restore 
the whole world. So that's where we get to in Genesis chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, let's have a look. Uh, This is verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he was sent out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his, ne- his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set off for the land of Canaan and arrived there. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you're not content to leave us where we are, and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would open the scriptures to us and reveal more of your loving kindness to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, just to recap, because the Old Testament is already, we're only like 12 chapters in, but it's already pretty confusing. Um, In the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates this good world, and it's full of harmony and beauty and potential, and humanity is there as the image bearers of God. We talked about they're they're invited and they're called in to take up their vocation and their calling to to partner with God, to co-rule with God, to create with God, to innovate um, with God, and that's all the stuff that God has been doing in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and then as I've said, from Genesis 3 to 11, it all goes a bit spectacularly wrong. We've rejected God's plans for human flourishing. And even though we've, even though, you know, our ancestors have believed the serpent's deceit, and again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago last week, whereby the the snake is is challenging and questioning, you know, God's word, he's challenging the nature of good and evil, he's challenging actually fundamentally God's love for humanity. Even though all of that's happened, God is still wanting and still trying to restore and redeem and return the world to shalom. And as I said, the way that God decides this is going to happen, for reasons only known to himself, is his choosing to do that through humanity. God wants to restore and redeem the world, to bring it back to shalom, and he wants to do that with and through humanity. And so God's going to save the world, and he's going to try and do that. Um, with us involved in that process. And, you know, the desire that God has to sort of collaborate with um, humanity, which we, you know, which is always right there from the very beginning. You saw it in Genesis chapter 2. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but having seen how humanity's kind of played out between Genesis chapter 3 and 11, it feels like a slightly risky kind of play. And you're sort of going, don't do it. Kind of, I know how this is going to end. But anyway, from chapter 3 on, God is trying to redeem the world. And right throughout the Old Testament, God is trying to bring about redemption. God is trying to bring about restoration, and he's trying to do that through and with humanity, and specifically at the moment in Genesis 12, through the family of, um, of Abraham. And so really that's just kind of a bit of a pointer. You know, when you're reading the Old Testament, which I know you will love to do, um, if you get kind of stuck in the Old Testament somewhere, which is quite likely, for those of you who've read it, you know, given all the laws about um, mildew and, 
you know, the cutting off of the hand of the wife of the guy that you're having a fight with if she grabs your genitals, or in the King James Version, um, your secrets. You know, that's all in there. Um, you know, so you're reading the Old Testament. I can understand. Like, you'd be excused and forgiven for going, what the heck is this? Because there's that, and there's so much more. Try and sort of push through that and remember that actually what this is about is God redeeming the world. Through all of the laws and all of the craziness. And like, this is about God redeeming the world and wanting to do that through humanity and specifically through the family of Abraham. So when God commits himself to Abraham, he enters into covenant relationship with Abraham. He is committing, he's tying himself to that family to bring about restoration and redemption. That's pretty incredible. I mean, that whole thing is just mind-blowing. And so far from giving up on the world after the fall, God still loves the world, and he's going to love the world through a family. And, and it's important because um, that, God, that Abraham kind of trusts God, that Abraham sort of tries at least to obey God. And because Abraham believes and trusts and obeys God, God is going to try and use him in this process of redemption. So let's have a look at how that's going to work. Have a look at Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Because this whole chapter is really important. It's like a linchpin. It's really like pivotal to the whole narrative. Because if we miss what's going on in Genesis 12, we're going to miss so much of what's happening in the rest of the Old Testament. There's a lot going on here. Um, notice what God says he's going to give Abraham. First of all, verse 1, he says, go from the country, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. So first of all, he's saying, I'm going to give you some land. Okay? And then he says, yeah, I'm going to make you a great nation. Right? So in verse 2, so God wants to give Abraham a nation. You know, he wants to multiply his descendants and turn them all into like this massive people group, this nation. And then he says in verse to, and I will bless you. It's like saying, I want to give you your, my presence. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. I, I want to, to dwell. I want to res, reside with you. I want to kind of take up residence with you. Um, and so God says, I'll bless you. He keeps saying, I'll bless you. I'll do this. I'll do that. And then finally, God in verse 3 says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Because basically what he's saying is God wants the world to be blessed through what God is doing in and through Abraham. God wants to give Abraham this land. He wants to turn his people into a nation. He wants to be with him. He wants to take up residence with him, and he wants to bless the whole world through it. And so God commits himself to Abraham. There's this covenant. There's effectively this Abrahamic covenant, this marriage, this bond, this vow that is there's this whole sort of strange thing in, in Genesis chapter 15 about animals being cut out in half and people walking through the stuff. And it's basically like a, a a brutal and bloody wedding thing going on between God and Abraham. But it's a covenant that is made. And covenants, these vows, are unbreakable. And so that's what God is doing. And one of the things that you see when you're reading through this whole kind of narrative bit here in Genesis, you keep coming across this word blessing. It keeps coming up over and over again. And the word blessing is really quite interesting. He says, you know, I will bless you. Um, uh, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse whoever curses you. Uh, one theologian kind of puts it a bit like this. this I thought it was quite interesting, so here you go. Uh, he writes, The dynamic word bless expresses God's purpose to give his creatures, as us, all they need to fulfill their lives in his creation as he intends for them. The word curse, by contrast, expresses God's terrible judgment on his creatures when they rebel against his purposes for them. 
God's words of blessing on Abraham in chapter 12, 1 to 3, suggest yet another way that God is planning to do this through mankind. The five-fold repetition of the word bless is deliberately set in opposition to the five-fold occurrence of the word curse that experiences and you, you get in Genesis 1 to 11. God's curse or judgment on humankind has meant their loss of freedom. That's chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Their alienation from the soil. That's chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Their estrangement from one another. Chapter 4, verse 11. Their moral and spiritual degradation, which is 9:25. And the repetition of bless in Genesis 12, 1 to 3 declares that through Abraham, God is at work to reverse the effects of judgment on his creation. Though sin has brought God's curse on creation, God is still at work to recover his purpose of blessing for all that he has made. And Abraham is to be the medium of divine restoration for the whole world. That's pretty interesting. At least I thought it was. So I get to share that with you because I can. So what you're beginning to see is like this whole thing about blessing and cursing now is kind of all centered around Abraham, and Abraham is this pretty key player because he's almost like the source of who's going to get blessed and who's going to get cursed. And so all of a sudden, the way that Abraham engages with God, the way that Abraham engages with all of this stuff is going to have significant impact. It's like the whole center of activity is now placed on one man. And, um, you know, what's happened is the curse that has happened as a result of Genesis 3 that we looked at last year, and then all the spiraling down in Genesis 3 to 11, it means that we've, through our sin, through our bad choices, we've, we've lost our freedom, actually. We thought that this choice, I mean, how often does that happen to us? In the moment by moment, we think a decision and a choice that we're going to make is actually going to bring us freedom, and it actually results in a loss of freedom. We end up getting bound up and in bondage to something. Um, so the decision to sin and, and uh, rebel against God has ended up with us losing our freedom. We've been alienated from the land. We've been shut out from the Garden of Eden. Um, everything has gone um, pear-shaped. We have hostility towards one another. We've, we've lost kind of, we've got moral and spiritual shame. All of these things are the consequences that we experience, all of us, every single day as a result of the fallen. And God's repetition of the word bless is set against all of those things that are, uh, that came out through the curse. And so basically through Abraham, God is reversing the effects of judgment on creation. He's saying, I want to bring you into this land. I want you to make you a nation. I, I, I want to bless you. I want to be with you. And I want to bless the whole world um, through you. And we're kind of reading this and we're like going, wow, like no pressure, Abraham. It's like, that's like, it feels like a lot of weight, a lot of responsibility on this poor old guy's shoulders. It's like uh, poor, poor Abraham. I mean, it's just this old guy. But, and it's almost like, God, like, what? You, like, you keep coming up with these plans, but can you not see that your plans are like, pretty flawed? Um, because we know Abraham's just a guy, he's just a man, and we know that he's actually full of flaws himself. And so what we're seeing here is that God isn't looking down, scouring the earth for the perfect candidate. It's not like he's trying to find the, the, the perfect person, you know, the one who is sinless and blameless, because otherwise he, he, wouldn't picked, he certainly wouldn't have picked Abraham. Um, God doesn't look down on Abraham here, well, he's the one who's most likely to succeed. You know, I'm choosing him because he's the best of everyone. That's not the case. That's, no, that's nowhere, in, nowhere in the text. Abraham is full of flaws. Um, he's, he's really old. Not that that's a flaw, but it's, 
it's old. He is old, right? I mean, he's not like um, some young strapping worship leader like David, right? And so you'd kind of think, well, I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like, will he make it? I mean, how long has he got left in him? Like, I don't know. So uh, he's, he's old. That's, that's a factor. Like, think about his health. Um, he hasn't got any children, right? Which is, again, another kind of, it's kind of a factor if you're considering turning somebody into a nation and they're 75 and their wife's barren and they've got no kids. You're like, and I don't know, someone a bit more, you know. Uh, God's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, I don't even think at this point, Abraham is following God. Um, I think at this point, he's, like he's worshipping some other God. I, I, it's not God. <laughs> and um, he's pretty pagan. We don't know who it was, but he's like pretty pagan. Um, and yet God chooses him to be the individual through which he's going to bring about his redemption. And um, Abraham, you know, it's a bit hit and miss. Sometimes he obeys God. Uh, there's quite a lot of spectacular failure. Um, you know, another one of Abraham's flaws is um, he sells his wife uh, twice. Um, I don't know, never having attempted to sell my wife, uh, but I have, a, I have a feeling, I don't know if this is right, but I have a feeling that I don't think that would go down very well. And if I tried to do that once, I don't think that would go down. I don't think I'd live to try it twice. But Abraham actually tries to do it uh, twice. And then these things actually become sort of the stuff that goes on through the generations. And, and so as you read the narrative, as Abraham becomes his nation, a lot of the things in those flaws become repeated um, and so you see lots and lots of failure with a little bit of occasional success sprinkled in. And Abraham would go on to have this son, Isaac, who ironically sells his wife too. It's like a, a thing that they do, sells his wife to the same guy, Abimelech. Um, Isaac would have twins. One of them would be Jacob, who ends up having lots of kids through um, several different women. That whole story is a bit of a train wreck. Uh, and then um, one of the things that you discover when you read that is like, you get to get the idea that things like idolatry and polygamy don't end up very well. Um, these two things are never very good, so just in case if you, any of you have any ideas, uh, just don't do that because it's, it's really not good. Um, Jacob would get renamed Israel. He would have sons. They would be the head of 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and, but by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we're beginning to see the fulfillment of one of these promises. By the end of Genesis, Abraham actually has a lot of people. It's like, huh, who knew? Like, this guy started off like childless and she was barren. And now look at all these people everywhere. I mean, they're a little bit of a car crash. They're a little bit crazy, but there's a lot of people. And so God has given him a son, a son that's had a son, a son that's had lots of sons, lots of children. And they are now, by the end of Genesis, numerous. And so you're beginning to see, okay, God has fulfilled this promise to Abraham. Then you get to Exodus. And Israel's now got a lot of people, but they're not a nation, right? So we're starting to see the fulfillment of these promises that God has made to Abraham. They've got no land, um, nor does it seem like God is in a particularly close relationship with them. So um, we're reading the opening chapters of Exodus, and God's given them a lot of people, but they're slaves, right? This Something's not quite right. They're not in the land. God is not with them. Um, they're slaves under Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't know. Yahweh doesn't worship God. He fears that the Israelites, they're just getting too big for their boots, and so he oppresses them and he enslaves them. 
And then God remembers his promise to Abraham and he sends this deliverer to bring Israel up out of slavery um, so that Israel might worship God and that God might be in relationship with them. And you know the story, God crushes Pharaoh. Pharaoh is kind of seen as like the worst person on, in the Bible kind of almost to this point. Israel finds herself in the wilderness and God is calling her and wanting Israel to have land um, and he wants them to have land so that he can live among them. God wants to tabernacle among Israel. He wants to dwell with them. He wants to be with them. He wants their, his presence to go with them. And, you know, this is the part where it's sort of like, oh, okay, you know, this is, I get, I'm beginning to get the narrative flow here. The people, they're now a people and they're being delivered and they're getting a, hopefully there's some lands coming up and God wants to dwell with them. And um, this is part of the story again. This is part of what God um, promised to Abraham. And this is where we kind of have to uh, stop a little bit. God has made and, and pause Israel. God has made Israel this huge people. He, he wants to make them this nation. He wants to make them a kingdom of priests, is what it says in Exodus 19. He wants to give them their, their own land so that, and the reason for it all is so that they might be this nation that can become a light to the world and so that all nations on earth will be blessed through them. That's kind of the point. That's why they were delivered from slavery. That's why Israel was given the law. That's why the tabernacle was there. This is why Israel is, is told to obey and go into uh, the land. All of this wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole world. And God wants them to obey so that he can get on with the business of redeeming the whole world and bringing the shalom of the kingdom to the whole world. And God is trying to save the world through the nation if they'd only just believe and trust God, right? There to be this nation of priests, there to be a kingdom of priests to the nation through their obedience to Yahweh. They're supposed to be this example and this model. And it's like, do they do it? No. You know, certainly not as an entire people. There are some people who are slightly more faithful than others, some people who try to live out under the righteous implications of obeying God. But on the whole, the whole nation typically rebels again and again and again. And so by the time we get to Deuteronomy, kind of having worked our way through sort of um, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, and the brutality of um, just reading those two books, um, by the time we get to Deuteronomy, um, they're complaining all the time. I mean, they're complaining all the time in Exodus as well, but it's like Exodus and Deuteronomy are like a rerun of the same thing, just in case you missed it first time around. And they're just basically miserable and complaining, stiff-necked people. and just. Um, I mean, they break the Ten Commandments um, pretty much in one night, like at one big party blowout where, you know, the golden calf pops out of the fire. And um, they're told not to do all these things, so they have this great big party and they do all those things. And, you know, you're reading this and it's just like, oh my gosh, this is such a disaster. Like, what's wrong with you people? Like, do you not get it? And because of their failure to trust God, a whole generation gets judged and they have to wait, like, for a long time. There's a lot of wandering around aimlessly, hoping that one day they'll get into this promised land. Finally, they get into the promised land through Joshua. They enter the land, and now we're like, oh, okay, Joshua, it's like a breath of fresh air, right? Good, okay, we're, we're back in track, on track, we're back on track, they've been brought into the land, 
hooray, and this land is wonderful. It's portrayed like a second Eden. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so we go, oh, okay, now these guys, they're going to be a light to the nation, and all of these promises that God has made with Abraham, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant is all going to get fulfilled, and we're all going to get back on track, and restoration and redemption and shalom and happiness. It's all going to be coming our way. And um, do they do it? No, not at all. Um, get to the book of Judges, and Judges is another brutal book. Yeah, we discover that actually they just become like the Canaanites, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and they end up worshipping the gods of the Canaanites, and over and over and over again we see that God gives up the Israelites to their enemies because of their disobedience, and the book of Judges basically reads like Genesis chapter 3 to 11 all over again, just with different people, and it tells the story of a, a spiraling down towards disaster, really on every kind of level in the nation of Israel. And then we get to the coming of Samuel, okay? So we're sort of getting to the point in the Old Testament with Samuel, and Samuel, the, the book of Samuel opens up with a story of this um, girl, Hannah, she's, a, she's barren, and she's sort of representative of this barren, the barrenness of Israel at the time. Uh, Israel's basically kind of being headed up and led by wicked priests, um, people like Eli's sons. And um, again, it just always like calamity after calamity. Before you know it, Israel's enemies have captured the Ark of God, which is representative of the presence of God. And so now Israel's in the land, but God isn't in the land anymore. Like God's not with them. You know, God is now living with the enemy, actually, is where he's ended up. And God, Israel's finally got into the land. The ark is captured and, like, God's now gone. And, uh, like, just in case that's, like, not a good thing. You know, you kind of would be anxious about we lost God. Um, it's an amazing story. You know, when you're reading it, the narrative, when you can get into it sort of like this, there's all this back and forth, this storytelling. You know, God is trying to redeem and restore and bring the world to order, and the people keep disobeying. Um, and finally, it's like God is captured by the enemy, and, and, and God is no longer with us anymore. And someone sort of wakes up and says, I think we may have messed up here. Yeah, I, think we, I think this is not good. Um, this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is... That's how bad it is. And so Samuel is born into Israel's story, and Samuel becomes the last judge. He's a priest, he's a prophet, and Samuel eventually anoints this young shepherd boy as king of Israel. He's, David is going to establish Israel as a, as a kingdom under God's rule. Um, and under David, uh, David's son, Solomon, Solomon's going to build a temple and a palace in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to also be known as Zion, and they're going to be singing all these songs that David writes about Zion and about how God is in the middle of it all, in the middle of Zion, and God is going to fill the kingdom and fill the temple under Solomon's reign, and the, the, the shalom is all going to be back again, and it's going to feel like Eden has been restored and regained and paradise is back because God is with his people in the land as a nation. They are as a nation in a permanent kind of um, temple. And you can sort of look at it and you're like, well, actually, it looks like that kind of works. You know, that monarchy thing looks like it's done pretty well because they've brought prosperity and peace more than Israel's ever kind of seen up until that point. And you're reading the, the narrative and you get to the end of Solomon's life. And like Solomon, the, the narrative around Solomon and the, the richness of the kingdom at that point is like, wow, this is awesome. This, this must be what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And so you're like, now 
perhaps Israel is going to draw the nations um, towards the Lord. And you see glimpses of that, you know, like the arrival of the Queen of Sheba. She comes in. She wants to see the expression, the tangible expression of what God's kingdom could actually look like. And so you're thinking, great, they're going to be this wonderful lighthouse to the nations. And is that what they do? No, not at all. Um, Of course they don't, because Solomon introduces all kinds of pagan worship into Israel through like he has a gazillion wives, right? So he has like polygamy times 10. And um, after his death, the kingdom is torn in two. Uh, like the, it's like, it all starts to fall apart. The northern part is called Israel, and it's so bad. It's so wicked. It's so full of rebellion and unbelief. And they, they're just completely not committed to their part of the covenant, you know, and their vocation to be a blessing to the world. That God eventually judges them and sort of basically wipes them out. Uh, the southern part of the kingdom splits off. It becomes known as Judah. It's where Jerusalem is. Uh, and they kind of have a series of some good, some bad kings. But eventually they get judged by God and are taken into, exit, uh, into exile in, in, in Babylon. So they're in captivity. And we're kind of reading through the narrative of the Old Testament from this pivotal thing in Genesis 12 where God is trying to bring about redemption. And we get towards the end of the story, and it's like, you know, the land has gone, the temple's torn down, the people are scattered, and we're like, you've got to be kidding me. What happened? Like, how did this happen? This is, dev- this is devastating. You know, so from Adam, Abraham all the way up through Solomon, God has been trying to establish this nation to bestow his blessing on this people so that they would be a light to the world because he wants to save and redeem and bless and bring flourishing and health and wholeness and fullness and life. And at almost every point, they're just like, yeah, we don't want to do that. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. And they keep disobeying their vocation until um, finally they're out of the land. The temple of God is torn down and everyone is, is scattered. And then we kind of come to the prophets and the prophets um, start to speak, and through the prophets, God speaks. And he speaks into Israel, and he promises that they will be back in the land, and um, there will be restoration. And God promises through the prophets that there is one who comes with healing in his wings, and, and he will restore the nation, and he will bring Israel into this new covenant so that they can have new hearts where they can truly know and serve and love and follow God. And God will use, God hasn't given up on Israel. He will use Israel. He's not forgotten his promise. He entered into a covenant with Abraham and he will not renege on that covenant. And God will restore and renew Israel and he will draw all nations to himself even if it means that he himself has to step in onto the scene and take on the sin of the entire world in order to do that. But that's next week, so no spoilers. Although hopefully some of you are aware of the spoiler alerts in this story. Um, The point is that even through all of Israel's, and I will finish, don't worry, all of Israel's rebellion or whatever, the point of all of this that I want to make is that God is faithful. It's like all of this car crash of rebellion and just doing their own thing and polygamy and blah, 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 blah. God remains constant. He never leaves. He will fulfill his promises. He who has promised is 
faithful. God has promised to redeem and restore the world. And the Old Testament is the story of how God intended to do that through Abraham by giving him, giving them a land, making them a nation, being with them, giving them his presence so that all nations would be blessed. It's that. That is the story. And even though it hasn't quite gone according to plan, um, which is quite possibly the understatement of the year, uh, God remains faithful. Mankind, humanity, they didn't keep their end of the bargain. They didn't keep their end of the, the covenant. But God remains faithful. He remains faithful to his promise to restore and renew and redeem. Even though we may have abandoned him, he has never and he never will abandon us. And um, I came across this story. It's a story from uh, the earthquake in Armenia. Um, in, I think it was in the late 80s. It was a, uh, I think it was an 8.2 uh, magnitude earthquake that rocked. I mean, there was this, uh, this the kind of story centered around this uh, father and son relationship. Um, the, the boy's name was Armand, and um, his father would take him to school every single day. And uh, when he would get out, the, as his son would get out of the car, his father would say to him, he'd say, you know, I'll always be there for you, son. I'll always be there for you. It's every single day. He'd say, I'll always be there, I'll always be there for you. And then this terrible earthquake happened, and um, the school was raised to the ground. And the father went to the school, because that's where his son was when the earthquake hit. And um, with his bare hands, uh, nothing else, he just... Armand's father just started to dig, and he just started to dig and to dig and to dig, and he started pulling bits of brick and plaster and rubble and rock and debris and everything. Uh, and everyone was kind of gathering around him, and there were people who were saying to him, seriously, like, well, just give up, mate. They're all dead. Right? There is no point. No one's going to survive this. Don't, don't even bother. They're all dead. And, and, and he, the father said to them, he said, look, you, you, know, you can complain if you like, or you can moan, or, have a go, or you could help. And so some people started to help, but after a little while they got tired and their arms started to ache, and so they kind of gave up. But Armand's father carried on. He carried on. He couldn't stop thinking about his son. He carried on digging. And he literally dug for hours, and he dug for 12 hours, and he dug for 18 hours, and he dug for 24 hours, and he dug for 36 hours straight without stopping, just pulling back rock and debris. And, and then finally, on, after 38 hours of trying to clear rock, he heard this muffled groan from somewhere deep under the rocks. And as he pulled them away, he, as he, he, from the darkness, he heard this, this kind of trembling, shaking voice saying, Papa. All of these voices suddenly, all these voices suddenly started to kind of muffled cries started to come out as these other young survivors that were down there with Armand um, started to stir beneath the rubble. And they, that day, he pulled out um, 14. There were 33 students in that part who... Um, uh, they, they, they managed to rescue 14 of them. And uh, what Armand, the, what the boy said to his classmates when they when, you know, went out afterwards was, um, you know, I, I knew that my father would never forget. I knew that he would never let me down. I knew that he would always be there for me. And, you know, that's a poor reflection, but it's a picture of the God of the Old Testament. In the midst of what we can so easily perceive to be a narrative of violence and bloodshed and seemingly very random laws and even more random things and occurrences. Um, the Old Testament 
is actually a love letter. It's actually a love letter. It's the story of God's um, faithfulness, his goodness, and his grace. The Old Testament is literally the story of God's goodness running after us. All the way through. Every time we read it as just violent and crazy, we're missing the point of the way that God is wooing us and has been wooing us right from the very beginning and continues to woo us to this day. It's the story of a God who longs to be in relationship with us, the story of a father who doesn't give up on his promises. And God continues to chase after Israel because he continues to be faithful to his covenant. He wants to, he wants to make them a, a blessing to the world. He wants his presence to be with them. He wants to be in relationship with them. And um, he continues to go after us today for the very self-same reason. This, you know, the Old Testament is a story of our Heavenly Father who's just saying, you know, I'll always be there for you. And um, just in finishing this, you remember the the story from uh, Genesis chapter 3. I just feel like this is one of the things the Lord wants to do. Uh, we'll minister to one another in a second. We'll get the worship band back. But I feel like the thing the Lord wants to remind us of is from Genesis chapter 3. This is after um, the fall. This is after um, Adam and Eve. This is immediately after they've kind of fallen foul and, and, and believed the lies of the snake. And um, it says this, and the, the man and his wife, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And, you know, the story I'm trying to kind of tell you today is, is that story. God craves the level of intimacy with us whereby he walks with us in the garden in the cool of the day. He longs to have that relationship with each one of us, one-on-one. -on -one. And we know ourselves, we know, we all know far too well our wretchedness and our sinfulness and our bad choices and our terrible thoughts and all that kind of stuff. And when God comes to pursue us, we say, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think I can do this. I, I'm ashamed. And so I, 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 I need to hide. And the invitation from our fathers is, don't, there's no need to hide. Because he's pursuing us. And he wants to pursue us and he's going to carry on pursuing us. Because that's what he wants to do. That's what he does. He loves us. And he wants to bring us into flourishing and health and wholeness. Um, yeah. That's me done. You'll be glad to hear. Why don't you stand? I have the worship band back.